Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word together this morning and the privilege it is for me to be preaching your word. Lord, you know I need you. Please come by your Holy Spirit and open our minds and hearts to your leading. Grant us humility to put ourselves under the teaching of your Holy Spirit. Quicken, convict, encourage, inspire, admonish, illuminate, and challenge us by what you would have us see and apply from your word. Enable the one speaking to humbly serve so that your words are all that any of us hear. Glorify yourself, Lord God, and have your way. In the name of Jesus, I pray. There is much that seems to be driving us apart these days, would you agree? It feels like forces at work are trying to push us into deeper isolation and deeper individualism rather than community and love of neighbor Forces pushing us into different camps, each with their own ideology and talking points. And regardless of the issue, each camp seems to demand a kind of absolute commitment to its cause. If you dare question the camp's ideology or challenge a talking point, you're deemed a threat. And since our human causes are where so many of us often find our worth, a challenge to the camp is considered an attack on someone's self-worth. How dare you be so insensitive? So challengers are ostracized from the group and often denied re-entry. Hence, a whole new kind of human culture has been coined, the cancel culture. I heard a seminary professor recently, recently explain why we may be experiencing this kind of camp and cancel mentality. It went something like this. Because we've been created in the image of a God who is absolute and have been literally hardwired by divine design to function most healthily under his absolute authority, even if we choose to deny God's existence, we still have a deep longing to have absolutes that securely order and guide us in life. But if we believe the lie that there's no absolute truth, then our sinful inclination to make our own rules always wins out. And once that happens, we only want to surround ourselves with those who think and agree with us. So we find our different camps where our personal rule of life gets validated and it feels like a safe community because we aren't likely to be confronted. And heaven forbid, if our views or rules are ever questioned, we can retreat under the camp banner, find security in numbers, and let the camp experts speak in our defense. Hmm, an interesting prognosis of our present culture. We're rejected, we've rejected the absolute nature of God, but so crave what only he can healthily provide that we try to recreate it in our own image, in our own strength. And where is it leading us? To more division and more isolation. Yet here we are, praise God, here we are. God's called us into vibrant community as people of the Lord. We are his church. 
and he has revealed to us truths, absolutes about himself, about us, about the world that literally are this morning drawing people together, a life-changing community that actually invites and welcomes new and different people. One such truth is the simple fact that we have a Lord. What an interesting word. That's where I've been lately. One Lord that unifies us all. We are the people of the Lord, children of the Lord. And this morning, I want to press into what that word Lord really means. So our jumping point is Exodus 33 and 34. Let me give you a little context, and then I'm going to read it, and we'll stand. Moses is leading the Israelites And they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. He's been up there once already. He's returned only to find the Israelites. They've crafted a God in their own image. And they're worshiping a golden calf. In anger, he throws down the two stone tablets, which God himself has engraved with the Ten Commandments. And God also is angry. And God declares that he will not go up with the Israelites any further towards the promised land because he's likely to end up killing them all in righteous judgment because of their rebelliousness. So here we have Moses meeting with God, conversing about their situation. Moses wants God's favor so that God will go up with them on their journey. So let's look at the text. Please, if you're able, may may we stand in reverence to God's word. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then we bump down to the beginning of Exodus 34. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Moses' conversation with God at the bottom of the mountain leads to quite an encounter at the top. God blesses Moses' desire to know him better by inviting him back up where he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock for protection, I presume, from being blasted by too much radiating glory. Then God parades, if you will, all his goodness past Moses in a sensational way and shares with Moses his name, the name of the Lord. So to help catch the significance of God's name, the Lord, I'm going to attempt to answer these five questions this morning. Why do God's people call him Lord? What problem does his name expose? What remedy does his name reveal? How do we get the cure? And what are the lasting effects of this cure? So first question, why do God's people call him Lord? Easy answer, because it's God's name. And he wants his people to know him by name. He knows us by name. He wants us to know him by name. What does it mean to know someone by name? Wouldn't you say that when you share your name with someone, when you've got to that point in your relationship, um, you're moving to a, a new level of, of, of relationship. I would say intimacy. You're moving to a new level. You might remember that Moses had already had an encounter with God at a burning bush in Exodus 3. God was sending Moses to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it was this unusual encounter where Moses first asked God about his name. Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. Say this, I am has sent me to you. In Hebrew, this unique name, this I am name, is the word Yahweh. In English, the word Yahweh is translated Lord, and it's often in all caps in our scriptures. So, here atop Mount Sinai, God gives Moses what he's asked for. Show me now your ways, he asked. Show me your glory. God reveals to him not only a physical manifestation of his being, but also a declaration, a proclamation of the name in long form. And here it is. The Lord, the Lord. So it's Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what do we see? God reveals not just his first name, if you will, I am who I am, Yahweh, which we translate the Lord. So he doesn't just say that. He actually says it in double form, the Lord, the Lord. But then he adds to that. He adds a fuller description of his nature and gives that to Moses. Most of this sounds like good news to our ears, doesn't it? Except for the last three lines. <laughs> so here we see two sides of God's nature that people struggle to kind of keep together. His mercy 
love and forgiveness and grace. That's one side of his nature. And then his justice, his retributive justice. Both are essential to each other because there is sin. There is cosmic crime against God in this world. And there has to be justice and there has to be a judge because there is justice. Crimes demand retribution. They have to be paid for. So now considering this long name, does anything in here stick out to you as problematic? What problem does his name expose? So let's look at his name and I've divided it here. It's coming. There's two phrases. There's the word but in this name. And there's a phrase before the conjunction but and the phrase after the conjunction but. And these two phrases are forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? It might not be obvious right off, but if you examine these two attributes side by side, you'll catch it. So God forgives those guilty of iniquity, transgression, and sin. By the way, those are the three Hebrew words to describe all kinds of sin. But God is the one who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see the problem? What problem does God's name, given in Exodus 34, present? Here's the, here's the answer. Who are the guilty that he forgives, and who are the guilty he refuses to give? Who are the guilty he forgives, and who are the guilty he refuses to give? And what if you're guilty? How do you know which camp you're going to land in? So to find a scriptural answer to this question, and because we spend a lot of time in the Minor Prophets this summer, I have three Old Testament passages, all of which quote a portion of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. So we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture and see what these other passages where Exodus 34, 6, and 7 is quoted and see what they say. So first, we're going to look at a passage in Joel. Joel prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, and he spoke of a coming judgment due to the rebelliousness of God's people. Joel talks specifics about what is necessary for a guilty person to receive God's mercy. So just look at this text. You even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend, not your clothes, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There you go, four of the name attributes here. Why does Joel quote them? Because Joel is saying that these names, these qualities, these four attributes of the Lord are your motivation. Your motivation that if you are out of accord, if you're an enemy, if you're an adversary, if you're against God and you come to your senses in any way, shape, or form, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. But what is our attitude to be when we go before the Lord? Our hearts ought to be rent. I don't know when the last time that maybe has happened to you, where you were so struck 
by the depth of your own depravity, your own selfishness, and you saw it. Maybe somebody had to put light on it. Maybe your spouse revealed it. Maybe a coworker. I don't know. When was the last time? And you found your heart torn in two because you saw, you saw your own brokenness. So now let's look at Jonah, passage in Jonah. You know the story of Jonah. Key characters, key main figures in Jonah, not the fish, even though he's kind of cool. Pretty cool Uber, but messy. Key players, God, God's prophet Jonah, and the people of the city of Nineveh, a foreign pagan city. What does God do? Sends Jonah to Nineveh. Jonah does not want to go, but he ends up there. And he does what God calls him to do. And he preaches to them that God is going to destroy Nineveh unless they repent. This pagan city, big pagan city. He walks a day's worth into the city. <laughs> it's three days wide it takes to get across this city. What happens? They repent. Everyone, including even the king. They repent. It's crazy. They fast. They put on sackcloth. Even the animals are all covered in sackcloth. And it says the king declared a fast and that everyone should wear sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. So what did God do? Here's what it says he did. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are, Exodus 34, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So when these foreigners took to heart the word of God preached by Jonah, and they responded by humbling themselves for their simple ways, God relented, meaning God extended to them mercy and grace and forgiveness to Ninevites of all people. And this made Jonah very unhappy because he wanted them to get smoked by God's justice because they deserved it. So lastly, the last passage is out of this little book called Nahum which I guess I read in seminary because I had to sign a paper saying I read the entire Old Testament. And I think I did. But I was supposed to preach on this book this summer and, and COVID knocked us all over the place. Didn't get to do it, but here Nahum appears. You want to know what's interesting about Nahum? Nahum is Jonah part two, if Hollywood were involved. Same key players, God, God's prophet, this time Nahum, and the people of Nineveh. But now we're 100 to 150 years later, past Jonah, okay? And so what, is, what does Nahum prophesy in his book? The entire, it's a little book, three chapters. It's all about the utter destruction of the city of Nineveh. And what's interesting is Nineveh wrote this prophecy 50 years before, get this, Babylon utterly destroyed and wiped Nineveh off the face of the map. 50 years. So let's look at this little text. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous 
an avenging God. The Lord is an avenging, is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he keeps wrath for his enemies. Then this, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. So what do we see here? Two of the name attributes in this text. Which are they? The Lord is slow to anger. Get this. He wrote it. It got out there for 50 years. Nobody responded in Nineveh to his prophecy. Even though they had Jonah in their history. So the Lord is slow to anger and he will by no means clear the guilty. And history confirms it. The Babylonian Empire destroys them. So listen, the God of mercy and love is also the God of justice, including divine vengeance. And it's interesting but the, because this attribute, vengeance, which is great for movies. We get all caught up. We're waiting for the, you know, for the character who lost his dog and lost his house and what all these bad things happen. We are waiting for that turn in the movie where he gets to take vengeance on the bad guys. We love those kind of movies. You know what Paul says in Romans? Vengeance is off limits for you humans. You can't handle vengeance in a biblical way, so you need to leave vengeance up to me. I think that's pretty interesting. But vengeance is not an attribute we see in Exodus 34. What does that mean? That means that over time, God actually can reveal more aspects of his nature. He doesn't have to just stick to this list. There are other aspects of God, and he reveals things over time, just like he told Moses his first name, and now he gives him a fuller name, and we're going to see here that that name explodes in the New Testament. So, what remedy does the name reveal? What remedy? And here's the answer. The only remedy for rejecting God's rule and authority, get this, the only remedy is God's mercy and forgiveness. So in order for you to find the remedy or the cure for your brokenness and your waywardness and your rebelliousness is to understand that it's against God ultimately and the only way to get it cured is you gotta go back to him. You gotta go back to him. And what's the motivation? Because he's gracious and merciful and abounding in love. That's why. So what do we learn from these three passages? The guilty person that is reconciled to his creator God is the one who humbly goes back to the Lord. And there's only one place and one person to go to for saving mercy and forgiveness, and that's Yahweh. But there's one more problematic piece of his name that's begging clarification. The Lord's name says that guilt for sin never will never be cleared, meaning it must always be paid. So how did all these past sins of every rep repentant Old Testament person before Jesus who returned to Yahweh with rent hearts, how did they get their sins paid for? We know that the animal sacrificial system didn't quite cut it because of what's said in Hebrews. But we also know in Hebrews that there is someone who sacrificed himself once for all, and in his sacrificial death, all of the sins of everyone who comes to the Lord are paid for. That blows me away. I knew it, but I 
I really had to think about it when I prepared this sermon. So that brings us to Jesus. How do we get the cure? How do we move from being guilty and being in an adversarial relationship towards God to becoming part of his people? Even as believers, we get into an adversarial attitude towards him. What do we need to do if that happens? Same thing. The cure is the cure. Praise God. And it's always effective. So the remedy for guilt that's found in the Old Testament is the same as the remedy that we have today. Believe in the word of the Lord and return to the Lord, your creator God, while turning away from your rebelliousness with broken hearts. That's how an Old Testament person came to know God and be saved. That's how a New Testament person. But there is now a fuller name, a new expression of Yahweh than Moses had ever imagined. The Lord has been sent to us in fuller form, actually, in a person. So let me look at a couple, couple Old Testament verses, couple New Testament. Let's look at the Old Testament ones first. They're gonna be really familiar for you. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. There shouldn't be a comma there. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When do you hear this verse? At what time of year? Why? This is a messianic prophecy of Jesus coming, a baby born in a manger to Mary and Joseph. But look at these names. He will be called, his name will be called Mighty God. That's the Hebrew word El, Elohim, God. His name will be God. And look what else, everlasting father. Wait, this is the son coming, right? His name will be everlasting father and prince, son of peace. Wow, he's got a lot in his name. What is in a name? So let's look at the next one. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our gods. Anybody, you know, Bible quiz. Who is this prophecy actually about? In Mark, who is it about? John the Baptist. It's prophesying about John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist's job was to come and do this. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? Jesus. But look at these two words in this verse. Prepare the way for the Lord, Yahweh. I am that I am. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Elohim. Who is this guy that we watch in The Chosen on television? This, this character that we're enamored with. He's amazing. He's humble. He's, he's wise. He's, who is Jesus? Do you understand? I don't understand and neither can you. He is Yahweh in skin. He is the Lord. These names that are just on a list that Moses heard verbally, he is the manifestation of all of these, these qualities. He is the absolute of mercy, the absolute of grace, the absolute of love. He is the absolute. He is our absolute. And we need him. We're designed to live under the absolute authority of God. And Jesus is God. So now let's look at two more quick. I'll try to be quick. These are amazing. These are Jesus himself, he's in a conversation. 
He's in a conversation with some Jews and it's adversarial and he tells them, he says, your father Abraham, Jesus says this, your father Abraham, who lived 1,500 years earlier, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What are you talking about, Jesus? Abraham rejoiced to see your day, Jesus? I can see why they were a bit perplexed. And then Jesus said this, Abraham, he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And this is Jesus' response. Get this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Oh my gosh. He has the audacity to use God's first name, claim it for himself. Yes, he does. Now here's one of my favorite I am verses. This is awesome. Jesus is about to be arrested. There's a posse coming. Judas is leading them. They have swords and clubs. They're coming to get Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's what happens. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? I love it. Jesus is setting them up. Who do you seek? And they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, he doesn't say, I am he. He says, ego a me. He says, I am. He set him up. Who are you coming to see? Jesus, I am. And what happens? Please, please notice this, because it's really understated in Scripture. But please notice what happens next. They drew back and fell to the ground. What? The whole posse falls to the ground? At what? What power knocked him to the ground? One little tiny ray of the glory of God that Jesus let out when he said, I am. He used the proper first name of God and claimed it for himself. Do you see? How do we get the cure? Oh my gosh. We know what ultimately happens with Jesus. Yahweh, we know what happens. Yahweh sends the exact representation of himself in the person of his son and he comes and he goes to the cross and he dies a criminal death, a bloody death, a violent death, a torturous death and it seems like such a waste yet it's not a waste at all. Jesus came to be the sin payment for the guilt of God's people who will inhabit his kingdom for all eternity. Not one drop is wasted. And if you're in this room and you call Jesus Lord, you call Jesus Yahweh. See, I call him Lord and I forget. I forget that the Lord is Yahweh. He's not just a messenger. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a representation. He's not simply a reflection of God's character. He is Yahweh. And he came and he died. And he didn't waste one drop of his blood because it was efficacious. And it was efficacious for many of you and there may be some of you who it is yet to be efficacious for. But it's coming. And that's a beautiful thing. So how do we get the cure? By trusting the Lord's word and humbly turning from our rebellion, which is deep, deeply written in our fabric of who we are, and following the Lord Jesus. And I know that doesn't sound very exciting, but listen to these three verses. One's out of John, one's out of, two are out of Colossians. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, 
So when you trust in the word, what are you saying? You're not just saying you trust in this book. You trust in the word. This book is a written representation of a living person. His name is Yahweh. His name is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is eternal. He always has been and always will be. He came into human form a couple thousand years ago as a baby, grew up into a man named Jesus, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. What does Colossians say about Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God. Get that. He is the image, visible, of the invisible God. What was invisible to Moses, and Moses would had to be put in the cleft of the rock, God has now given us a fuller form of who he is, a most the best expression of his name that we can yet imagine, and it's Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? He is the image of the invisible God. For in listen to this. For in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So remember we said that the only remedy for rejecting God's rule of his own authority is his mercy and grace? Well, now we see that Jesus himself is Yahweh. He is the absolute fullness of God in human form. And he then is our remedy. He is our remedy. He is our cure. He is the embodiment of God's name. Jesus is Lord. So one little aspect here. It says the Lord's name says that guilt for sin will never be cleared, meaning it must always be paid for. Jesus is the payment that pays off our sin debt. I just want you to see scripture that validates this. Romans 5, 8, and 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from, saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Almost there. What are the lasting effects? What are the lasting effects of accepting Christ? And at the last slide of this sermon is a, is a prayer, a, a repentance prayer. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to be praying it, and I'm going to ask you if if you're at that place, whether you're a believer or maybe you're yet to be, and you're seeing, wow, I never realized that Jesus is who he says he is. And I never really understood fully that he came for me, and he was the one perfect sacrifice that washes away the guilt of my sin before a holy and righteous judge. I need that. I want that. So what are the lasting effects? Forgiveness. Oh, my gosh. How many of us are racked with guilt and shame? And we're in Christ and we still get racked with guilt and shame. We forget whose we are. We forget how efficacious, whose blood was shed for you? Whose? No ram, no lamb. Jesus Christ, Yahweh in human form, shed his blood that your sins would be completely washed clean. Remember that, forgiveness. Don't forget, remember Remember whose you are, tacky, Lion King, line, but I like it. It works. It's why we like the story. Father, son, father's reminding, remember whose you are. 
Forgiveness and eternal life in union with God. New spirit-led heart. We have new hearts. We have new hearts. The old one still beats, sadly. And we defer lazily. We def I defer to my old ways and my old heart. I drop back into those wagon wheel ruts so easily. But I have a new heart. And I'm called to massage it. I'm called to feed it. I'm called to, to, to do everything I can for that new heart to grow and be healthy and pump eternal life through my person so that I can reflect the name of Jesus. We have new spirit-led hearts that compel us. We want to be more and more like Jesus. That's a surefire evidence. If you're bummed because you're not more like Jesus, that's probably a good thing. You wouldn't care less if you weren't in Christ. If you want to become like him, he says, he gives us. We know the cure. Take your poor cry, your heart out to him. Tell him, tell him what you're struggling with, what you're anxious about, what you're afraid of, what your troubles are. Cry out, pour your heart, rend your heart before God. I don't know if you've done that recently. We need to do it regularly. We need to have people in our life who encourage us and give us the freedom to rend our hearts. It's not popular in America to be weak. And yet, that is who we are. Ongoing change, growth in relationship with God and one another, life on mission, sent on God's rescue mission. Listen, we are not a camp that is encircled and we're shooting arrows out at the world. We are a circle and we're all holding hands with one hand, we're holding hands. The other one, we are reaching out into the world. And we are looking for people that are different, who need Jesus. We are inviting them to come in. Are we? Do we want different people in this room next Sunday? I don't mean just a little different. I mean a lot different. And why would we invite them? It's the heart of God for us to reach out to them. It's the heart of God for us to cross the street, to knock on our neighbor's door and invite them to dinner to go across state, to go across the ocean. It's God's nature to send us out to invite people in to his mission. Listen, we get to be part of the rescue mission that rescued us. That's awesome. And then life in community with the church. What? These are lasting effects. Life in community, in real life engagement. All right, got to stop. So, I don't know where you are. I don't know who you think Jesus is. But I hope this message has helped. Maybe crack the door. But I'm going to pray um, the repentance prayer, a sinner's prayer, whatever you want to call it. I'm going to pray it now. And I want to invite anyone in this room to pray with me. Okay? You don't have to. It's okay. You can just follow along. But if the Holy Spirit is leading you to re-up, to, re to refresh to come before him and rend your heart. Maybe you need to ask God to help rend your heart. Maybe that's a really hard thing for you. It's hard for me most of the time until something comes in and pries me open. So we're going to do what the, the name teaches us to do right now. Pray with me. Dear God, I am convicted that I too am guilty of rebelling against your absolute authority and rule over all creation. I understand that I deserve your punishment for my treasonous thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. I understand 
that I have no remedy but for your mercy, grace, and forgiveness. I have no remedy but for your name, the Lord Jesus. So this morning I reject my own rebellious ways and I run to Jesus as my Lord Yahweh and Savior. Thank you, God, for sending him to become the perfect sacrifice that paid the full debt my sins deserve. Thank you for reconciling me to yourself through his death on the cross and his resurrection that shows me that he defeated sin and death for me and I will live past the grave. Help me to grow in your Holy Spirit, to become like Jesus and use me, use me to accomplish your rescue mission by which I myself have been so mercifully rescued. Thank you, Yahweh. And all God's people said, amen.